Good morning to my fellow green men and women of the Isle of Faces. You are listening to Sir Buckley, and we are here today, back on the trail of Clash of Kings. This is part nine of twelve, I think. And yes, we're back to business. It's been a little gap. Um, if you've been paying attention at all to my Twitter, I know so many of you are addicted to it. Or if you happen to see an extra episode drop in the other faces feed on Monday, then you will know that this week has been very busy with the launch of The Great Castles of Westeros, which is my self-published book, uh, unofficial guide to those great castles of the world we love so much. Now, I am aware <laughs> I've been on about that more than enough on Twitter and elsewhere, and it's been an extra podcast already, so I'm not going to go on about it today, other than to say thank you yet again for people's comments and sharing and purchases as well. It's uh, quite quite an experience to watch the little ticker go up there of uh, units being shipped out. So thank you everyone for that. Um, but I will try my best not to mention castles. I don't think they come up too much today. Maybe every now and then. No, we're back on the trail. We had a, a gap last week while uh, Aziz and the Shea had a, a little rest break for Thanksgiving. And now we're back on the trail. We are back in the latter, latter quarter. We're right at the end of Clash of Kings, nearly the good stuff, the real good stuff is coming. But today we're back to our six chapters and let me run through which chapters those are specifically for you today. We start with Bran 6, which is the one where Fionn comes back to Winterfell. Bad times all round. Iron 9, the one where Aya gets her hands on some soup and uh, Hall gets a change in director. Then we have the famous Daenerys 4, the House of the Undying. I think I need to say little else than that to be honest to remind you of what that chapter is Tyrion 9 and really we're talking Blackwater prep here this is warm-up show now the uh, the battle is coming Theon 4 the one where Theon has to go for a search in the uh, in the Wolfswood and generally gets made a fool out of I know that doesn't really uh, separate the Theon chapters too much in this book but you'll know which one when we get there and finally John 6 we're up in the mountains we're with Corrin Halfhand and we finally meet Egret. yes a good bunch of chapters all different POVs as I'm sure as he's mentioned a couple of weeks back so we, we're going to a lot of different places this time and okay fair enough we are in Winterfell to start so there are castles but I promise I won't go on about Winterfell itself too much okay so the chapter begins with uh will be bran bran six and yeah that's right bran six bran six starts with bran being not himself he is summer he's in the the godswood and uh he's seeing the ironborn attack through summer's eyes and it's, actually, it's quite funny actually because summer he's nearly able to escape the godswood through bran's own influence he tries to climb the tree it's a little bit comical actually to imagine him and shaggy dog trying to climb this kind of half fallen tree and that's because Bran's in there. Bran's in summer. And Bran's the climber, isn't he? We know from before. He's the climber. He would have seen a, a half-fallen tree and thought, I can get up that. So we can see how Summer and Bran are linked here. But ultimately, Summer, he falls short. He can't get out of the godswood. And I think that mirrors a little bit of Bran's own feelings of being unable to escape where once he could have shot up the tree and ran around however he liked. Nowadays, he is much more confined and he can't climb and he's been feeling very trapped in Winterfell. Of course, those memories, those feelings are going to feel kind of insignificant given what's about to happen to his beloved Winterfell. While we're talking about summer and wolves, let me read you this quote. He howled, a long, deep, shivery cry, a howl to wake the sleepers. And let's focus in on that last part there, a howl to wake the sleepers. 
Well, that seems quite oafy to me. Night's Watch oafy. I wonder if you agree. Wouldn't it be funny if, because we know Ghost is famously mute, wouldn't it be good if Ghost's first ever how, his first ever noise, would be to replace the horn for some reason and to wake the sleepers to defend the wall? Maybe we'll find out when the others finally come, which is quite a divergence from this chapter, I realise, but it's just uh, quite specific language there. So sticking with Summer and Bran, this is the chapter where Bran, he really accepts himself in this chapter, to be honest, and not, not in the way he would have planned. He didn't want to find confirmation of Jojen's green dreams this way, but everything that Jojen said about the sea flowing over the walls and the drowning, that's come true. And I think Bran is really realising exactly what he is now, thanks to Jojen's influence and knowledge and to be fair he's just not got time to argue about it anymore this isn't his prime focus suddenly there's Fion and the Ironborn to worry about so he's just going to go get on and accept that he's a warg and, uh, and move on with it now moving on from Bran and Direwolves before we get to Fion himself this is the real rise of Reek slash Ramsay uh, and his influence because he really starts to have an influence on Fion here so that's the whole that's the beginning not the dead on beginning but it's definitely the relationship between these two the arc that's going to stretch right into Dance of Dragons, that's starting here in this chapter. And I think it's one of those things that you really can miss. This is one of the biggest reread factors of the entire series. Even on second and third read, it's hard to pick up those clues because Reek is kind of disguised so well until you really focus in on him. This is really Ramsay slash Reek getting his first measure of Theon, testing how cruel he will be when he he says we should flay the people. That's his measuring stick for Theon. Who is he dealing with? He's able to get into his service of ease and he's probably able to tell how kind of puffed up, puffed up and idiotic Theon is from the start. And it's, it's creepy to think what Ramsay could already be thinking. When he looks at Theon, is he already measuring up his pinky and thinking, oh, I could flay that easy. I could take that toe. Yeah, I'll bide my time. It's, oh, it gives you the shivers to think about it, doesn't it? Now, I said I wouldn't talk about castles that much. I promise this will be short. But we actually get a lot of castles falling in this book, if you take my meaning. More than I would have remembered if you'd asked me straight off. We've got Storm's End surrendering down in the south to Stannis when uh, Courtney Penrose takes a dive. We're, in a minute, we're going to see Aya freeing up Harrenhal with her soup and that changing hands, or falling, if you want to call it that. And Winterfell does twice, falls here to Fionn, it's going to fall again to Ramsay later, and that's really, especially in terms of Westro, um, in terms of Winterfell, that's a huge destabilising factor in the status quo of Westerosi living. These castles have been around for ages, they don't get defeated, they don't get taken, and it's really a kind of a, a sign of the, it's like a harbinger at the end of days almost. If these rock-solid tent poles that you've been aware of for thousands and thousands of years if even they're falling and you can't even trust in those anymore it's a little bit like the red wedding and the breaking of guest right like there's these fundamental things that aren't supposed to change because that's what westeros is made up of and the castles are part of that so we're seeing that especially in terms of winterfell because it's so so strong and it's been there for so long that continuity that people have relied on for so long they're all suddenly dropping like flies and really, how often do the like castles do fall? High Garden's been sacked and burned and whatever else. But how close do you get that in history? Normally it's thousands of years apart. And we're getting three. I've just listed three in a couple of months difference, really, aren't we? So it's, it's, again, that's a real sign we are in the end of days for Westeros. And I also wonder, is it George trying to lead us down a stray path? Is he trying to say... Because, like I say, the uh, the Blackwater is coming. We know it's coming. We know Stannis is coming for the Red Keep. 
So it's George trying to persuade us that the Red Keep really could fall. Because that's definitely how it looks like in King's Landing at the moment, isn't it? So is this another hint that, that hey, Harrenhal's gone, Storm's End has surrendered, Winterfell twice, why not the Red Keep too? So maybe he's just setting up that Blackwater chapter. While we get into Fionn, let me give you another quote. I'm Prince Fionn now. We're both princes, Bran. I just think it's always a great sign for your future when you feel the need to imprint your status and have your value recognised by a nine-year-old. Theon's going in there and he actually needs the validation from Bran almost. He really, in that whole conversation, couldn't just... There's different ways of doing it, which would make him seem a lot more confident. And as we're going to find out in this chapter, in subsequent Theon chapters, he's not confident at all. He's really got no idea what he's doing. And I think that's a big clue starting here. Now, it also occurs to me that if Fionn had wanted a, a much smoother transition, and you kind of, this is a little bit out there, you might have to bear with me. If Fionn had wanted a much smoother transition, he could have come in and told them all, all the Winterfell folk, that he had been sent by Rob to keep Winterfell safe. He could have claimed the North and the Ironborn had allied. He's in care of the, he's in charge of the castle for now. They're all in his care. Um, he's been sent back for safety. But because this is war, he needs total obedience. No messing around. This is the orders of King Rob. And then from there, you know, slowly, he can take a bit more power, take a bit more power. He needs to do it fairly quickly, obviously, before Roderick comes back. Because really, who is there left to stop him? There's no one there to question him anyway. You could just get a bit more subservience out of people. And it is possible because the slow exchange of information, for all Winterfell knows, the accord between Balon and Rob was struck, was solidified. So... I don't know, that's just a different idea how he could have done it a bit smoother, just to save him the hassle on day one, get himself in there, don't earn everyone's immediate distrust, throw everyone off balance, and then you can seize it a bit later when you're kind of invested in the castle. Now, you would argue, why do they need to take Winterfell then? Why do they need to climb over the walls? Valid argument. They could have just arrived, but whichever whichever way it was, there's different ways to do it. But Fionn would never go for that, would he? Because of his psyche. Even Let's say that was a really valid option and the, the inevitable holes in what I just said aren't there. He wouldn't do that anyway. He needs the declaration. He needs the validation, the show. Even though it would have been all the same in the end and he'd still have Winterfell, Fionn needs people to believe he conquered something. He wants Winterfell's people to know he's conquered them. If he came in and tricked them and ended up the same result, that's not of interest to him. He needs all those Winterfell people and the Starks, Bran and Rickon, who obviously are completely innocent in his own, in Fionn's own feelings of being hard done by, he needs them to know that he's gained one up on them. That's his whole identity thing. He's trying to get one back at the Starks, even though Bran and Rickon have obviously done nothing to him. That's my psychology deep dive for the day. I'll spare you anymore because we're going now to Iron Nine. We're going south to another castle. Please forgive me. We're going to Harrenhal which I'm allowed to talk about because it's not in my book, so I haven't got any Harrenhal off my chest. Let me start off with saying that I love that Aya, she seeks out and finds some solace uh, and some relief in the godswood of Harrenhal, in the same way that Sansa has been doing in the Red Keep. Now, it's a little different. They are different, very different women, different uh, sisters. For Aya, she finds swordplay and Jack and Agar. That's her thing. That's her relief. For Sansa, it's Dantas Hollard and the possibility of escape. But again, it's both of them still keeping that connection to the North and their family alive. That's what they're really doing in these godswoods. But I just like that mirror effect that we do see a lot between Aya and Sansa, especially on reread. I think I found that a lot, um, how much they mirror each other despite being so different. Another great reread factor uh, for this chapter is going back, picking up the clues that these injured prisoners, the whole thing was a fake out and Vargo Hope had already struck a deal with Roos. 
obviously there's there's just no way to pick that up on the first read and it's just another fun fun thing we get by way of reading this a second or third or 18th time as it might be let's talk about gendry he reappears in this chapter and uh, here he's very representative of jorah mormont's small folk philosophy in that jorah famously says in game of thrones that the small folk they don't they don't care who's king or queen like they just want to get on with it basically and gendry he's representing that he is already tired of war and brutality he just wants to be left alone just let him do his smithing make a living get on in peace and he makes a similar notion later on with the brotherhood although the fact that he's not actually having to serve some lord also plays in heavily there but it's the same kind of thing but we know again through value of reread gendry is not going to get that quiet life and he's uh, he's going to be forced into more noble callings of brienne later and i think it's funny it's good timing again by george because his insistence at serving one lord is just like any other. Um, it's well timed because we've just seen Micken of Winterfell refusing to smith for anyone who isn't a Stark. So we've got different ideals there from two different smiths. Now, while we're talking about the godswood, I've got a, a quote from Jacques Nagar here, which is always fun. It reads, By all the gods of sea and air, and even him of fire, I swear it. He placed a hand in the mouth of the weirwood. By the seven new gods and the old gods beyond count, I swear it. Now, I'm not really sure why, but this kind of reminds me of the oaths that Mira and Jojen swear to Bran a few chapters ago. There's just something a bit more elemental and fundamental about it. That they're kind of going beyond the normal oaths and getting down to the, the nitty-gritty. And I also just like that he's touching the mouth of the of the weirwood, because we've already had John making a big deal about that massive mouth of the weirwood that he finds in... Is it White Tree? Yeah, I think it's White Tree. So it's just some good connections there. But let's move on to the, the actual event of the chapter, which is... Aya helping or enlisting Jacken and Rorjan Biter to help with this switch and taking of Harrenhal. Again, the, the way these chapters are stacked next to each other, it's just brilliant stuff. So I've got another, because I know um, Aziz got into the actual meat of what happened, so I'm just picking up the pieces here. I've got another quote. Are you of the brave companions? Rorge wiped the snot off his chin with the back of his hand. We are now. And you've got to give it to Bite and Rorge. They are, for all, for all that they are in the world, which is a lot, they are also quick enough off the mark to be able to survive by switching sides when needs be. It's quite funny. And that is a valuable skill needed in this war. But also, it's another example of Jacken's power over the pair of them that he's able to get them involved in, the, in this thing, in this heist. Uh, is it intimidation? Do they owe him something? Who knows? But combine that with what we had in the last Dire chapter... Um, of Rorge just being obviously frightened of Jacken or just wanting no part of him, you can really see Jacken's influence. So up goes um, Amory Lorch and in comes Roos. And it's tough to get into Roos's mindset here. I think we can agree he has the betrayal of Rob in his mind by this point, but I tend to think he wants to get to Harrenhal just to give himself options for later. He's not specifically laying out the red the red wedding or anything like that right now. Remember, at this point, it really seems like the needle is swinging to Rob's side and that Tywin is in a whole heap of trouble. So Roos isn't going to be in a rush to isolate himself against a winning side, is he? Unless Roos somehow gets wind of a potential Lannister-Tyrell alliance, which I figure is actually next to impossible for him to learn that, Going all in on the Lannisters right now would be foolish, which Roos is definitely not, and a bit a bit hasty. So I don't think it could be that clear-cut in his mind. Having said that, we do get a lot of similarities to the Red Wedding in this chapter. There's the use of a meal as deception with the, with the soup, the slaughter within a castle, and, of course, there's Bolton involvement. So we can start linking things here. 
So also, interestingly, about Jacqueline and Aya and how this all ends up with Amory Lorch. So although Aya is told she can't have a third name after she's already pulled her trick with name and Jacqueline, she can't have another one, um, Amory Lorch dies anyway, gets off by the bear. So a third name comes off Aya's list regardless. So everything's the same there. And in the same way, it seems like, um, on my quick reread, it seems like Jacquin only personally kills one man in the Little Uprising. I could be wrong. I would have to go back and check. But Biter and Rorge do the majority. So perhaps he really has stuck to just killing three. So he maybe he really has killed three men and three names have come off Aya's list and everyone's all square, basically. Right, now that's all pretty basic and simple. Taking of castles, we know how to deal with that. Now we're going for something completely different as we... Zoom away from Harren Hall and the God's Eye, and we go to Calf and Daenerys IV, the House of the Undying. Very famous chapter, of course, very much revisited chapter for many reasons, but because this is the biggest treasure trove, easily, I would say, of prophecy and hints and all that stuff that we all love to analyse so much and so many people have so wonderfully over the years. We just can't get this chapter out of our heads especially because so much stuff seen here has yet to pass or has yet to uh, come full circle luckily i'm not going to go through all of the visions and that because aziz much better than i ever could has already done so so again let me just pick up the pieces before we get there for all the grandeur and splendor that danny has experienced in calf the building that she comes to now which is clearly the most important building for our purposes. That's the one we remember Carf for. It's just ugly and plain and boring. And that buys very heavily into the idea of everything is not as it seems that we've got with Carf. We've already spoken about kind of that fake layer of glitter and gold that she's been experiencing with kind of nothing there underneath. That is the reverse here. There's a boring house, an ugly house for once. It's not uh, Zaro's palace with all the trimmings but what's inside is actually way 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 more interesting and now she's seen so far and of course everything not being as it seems yeah damn right because we go into a flat house and she ends up walking upstairs half the time so of course not now it starts off uh daenerys her time in the house of the dying starts off with her having to drink shade of the evening and i had to flick forward to dance to check this but she says that the shade of the evening tastes foul and i flicked forward to dance Check to what brand's tasting of jojen paste, what we assume to be jojen paste, tastes like. And that is also foul, which, you know, it would be human blood. It's also foul, um, but then a little better on the second go, which is exactly what Daenerys says. Foul on the first taste, and then suddenly sweeter, much better. Considering that these two experiences are pretty similar, Daenerys looking into the future and the past, Bran looking into the future and the past, that's pretty important experiences for George to be connecting here. So take that as you will. Now, onto the visions themselves. As amazing as this chapter is, just for pure freakiness coming left and right and centre, it's always kind of stuck with me that what is seen kind of falls by the wayside of Danny's arc so far, on the surface at least, in her consciousness. And while at the time of publication a lot could be put into the Red Wedding vision, for example, I'm just so desperate for more of the Rhaegar vision. I've spoken about it elsewhere before, so I won't repeat too much here, but this is pretty much the most we ever get on Rhaegar's favourite pastime of enacting prophecies and even this isn't really confirmed we don't know Danny gets all the details right of timing and who's there and what what Rhaegar's really talking about or we don't even really know if it happened maybe it, maybe it was supposed to but didn't or whatever else we just don't know but especially as this whole experience seems set up to push Danny towards Restoros 
Her first vision is Westeros being ravaged by the Four Kings. She's got that kind of feeling of, uh, of another cold feeling chasing her. There will be a face worse than death, which you would assume is the others. And finally, of the, uh, the idea of if I look back, I am lost, which is supposed to push her forward again and does through the rest of the series. But I have to think this is all a casualty of George not knowing how long the series would be and originally thinking that these visions would be placed way closer to Daenerys heading to Westeros. That's definitely how it seems. And we, we haven't got that payoff yet, obviously. That's what we're waiting for. When it gets there, maybe it's really, we're really going to link up. And believe me, I'm not complaining because I love these visions. I just want to see them coming back and doing something and really having an impact. I'm just, I'm just greedy that way. I do like to think her seeing the two moments of recent Targ history that sent their dynasty crumbling, which is obviously Ares ordering the destruction of his city and Rhaegar possibly deciding in that moment he was going to go after Lyanna or someone else for the third child, the third head of the dragon. And obviously that's the action that would spark the rebellion in the first place. I like to think she's seeing those two moments to show she also has some debts to pay. She owes it to Westeros to go and set things right because her two male relatives... Uh, for whatever reason set things wrong now we've heard hints of the red wedding before ones that are a lot easier to see on the ent free read but now it's actually coming to its telegraph now we're not looking for hints and things this is a, a full-on showing right shoved right in our face it's tough to see how this relates to danny given given that she's just been shown a ravaged westeros that she's obviously supposed to supposed to save she can do something about that there's no way she could have affected the red wedding and she, even if she had been there, she would have likely been anti-Rob, anti-Stark. So she, she wouldn't have minded the Red Wedding too much, even if she might have not been too pleased with how it all went down. But I've chosen to believe it's just a magnitude of the Red Wedding as a crime stretching out kind of through the magical realm, the magical plane of Planetos, back, both forwards and backwards through time. It's, it's that bad that it's actually showing up like in the magic stuff of Calf. That's how much of a crime it is. Now, of all the visions... What stands out most to me is the idea of Stannis holding his red sword but having blue eyes and that his lack of a shadow is because because he's already made the shadow babies. So he's got no shadow, he's used it up basically. And also the possibility that the Great Stone Dragon could be another grayscale epidemic brought on by uh, John Connington. And that's just completely new on this reread. Re I had not thought about that at all. So I think you need to read this chapter three, four, five times to really appreciate these visions. I'm sure next time I read something else will come up to me. It's kind of just unending with these books, which is why we love them so much. Finally for this chapter, because I really can't delve too deep or we'll be here all day, it's mentioned that Rhaegar whispers a woman's name as he dies in Danny's vision. So if Rhaegar, if he really did whisper Lyanna, can you imagine how much that would have stuck with Robert for the next 20 years? He never, Robert never says that he does, that's never brought up anywhere, but given how much he's obsessed with him, that would have been a real kick in the teeth that Robert would have had to bear for the next two decades. So that's just something interesting to think about. Okay, so that's our halfway point. We're on to Tyrion uh, 11 now somehow. Oh dear, 11. And yes, this is the, the setup for Battle of the Blackwater. We've got Tyrion sending his clansmen out. Uh, they've got stuff about the antlermen and we've got stuff about clearing the docks and the harbour type area. So really it's just all set up. We're all doing our warm up now. Before we get to that, since we last saw the pyromancers, because they're getting involved also, that's part of the preparation, getting those wildfire pots ready. Since we last saw them, we've seen the fire ladder man in calf and we've literally just seen the enlarged powers of the undying. So, and now we get the mention the wildfire spells are working better than ever. That's why there's so many more pots than Tyrion ordered. So we're getting that connection here of 
pyromancer fire has gone up the undying they've gone up the wildfire that's gone up the whole idea of magic surging that we get throughout all of this book that's come up as well and again i must apologize here because i did say i wouldn't mention castles but in between in the middle of all this prep for war and the battles of the south and the southern politics and the king's landing stuff Tyrion pauses for a moment to re to think about his time during Winterfell and his description of the Winterfell Godswood is one of my favourite passages in all the series I have to say uh, he sees the Weirwood as frozen in time he sees the Godswood sorry as frozen in time and if you think about that's what a Weirwood is if it can see forward and backwards through time that's exactly what it is and uh, he feels he remembers the feeling of unwelcomeness he did not feel welcome and you gotta imagine that was probably shared by the coming Andals when they decided to cut down all the Godswoods uh, down south from all the weirwoods they probably saw those faces were like, i'm not looking at that let's chop it down we don't feel welcome here um and Tyrion's dead on the money he's right because Fionn feels very profound emotions later on in front of the heart tree about where he belongs and how he's not welcome and more importantly Tyrion claims that no one will ever own that godswood they can take the castle he says but they will never get that godswood and he's right again because both the greyjoys and the boltons they essentially leave it alone even they are not messing with the godswood they're not that stupid. We'll take Winterfell, which is a big enough gamble, but no, we're not messing with that godswood. That's probably a good idea. And let me read you this quick quote from this Tyrion passage. I've never felt so much a stranger as I did there. And that's a pretty big statement, because let's remember Tyrion's background. He grew up in a castle of Tywin and Cersei. He spent an entire childhood being told he was wrong and monstrous, but this is the place he's felt most unwelcome. Such is the power of the godswood, I suppose. And finally for this chapter, it's a fairly quick chapter, um, and Aziz used most of my notes. So just quickly to finish this one, there's some more evidence for Tyrion being hated by the small folk now that he's ordering their homes destroyed, like I mentioned on the harbours and the dock. It turns out this is critical later on. This is the correct choice. Tyrion is correct here. If Tyrion doesn't make this command, uh, there's a good chance Stannis' forces breach the wall. So this is an act of saving the city, but that's not how it's going to be seen, is it? No one's going to remember that after the fact. They're going to remember, where's my house? I remember now. Tyrion tore it down, so they're going to be angry with him. Okay, we're on to Fionn 4, which is the rather funny, I find it funny, uh, chapter where Fionn is just looking for Bran and Rickon and Osha and the Direwolves and the Reeds and is not very good at finding them, if we're honest. Just gets led on a wild goose chase all through the Wolfswood and we really see his ineptitude on display. He at least kind of kept it together when he was attacking the Stony Shore. Um, from the outside, basically had it okay when he took Winterfell. Now we're in his head again and we see he's just got no no idea what he's doing. And again, some quick notes to these. Most of them got new, used up, so uh, let me get to them. Theon kills Septon Shale in order to denounce the Seven and support the Drown God. He's saying, we're, we're casting down this image of the Seven. The Drown God is the God here now. But again, clearly, that doesn't extend to the Godswood. He's not burning down the Godswood or anything like that. There's no way he would ever have the stones to, to touch that wood and that symbol because he knows he probably wouldn't last the night if he tried to do anything to the Weirwood or the uh, or the Godswood, which just goes to show that power that's been embedded in Fionn. Even though he wants to hate everything about the North, there's just no way it's leaving him now. So that ties in nicely to what we just said in Tyrion's chapter. I don't think I'd buy into this theory, but I have heard it said that one of the Miller's boys could have been Fionn's own son by the Miller's wife, making him a kinslayer with how this chapter ends and thus earning him the cursed life that he endures past this point. And I think as he's got to this, but I much prefer Fionn's cursed life being a consequence of his own actions, personally. I don't like that uh, that kind of out. It feels like an out to me. This is a kinslaying type thing. Now, finally, 
for this chapter. Though, like Fionn's last chapter, he has an internal battle with Stark versus Greyjoy. Not just last chapter, basically every Fionn chapter. Internal battle of Stark versus Greyjoy throughout all proceedings. And he's normally thinking he's on one side when he's on the other. He just he switches to one, reality's on the other. He switches back, reality shifts. It's, uh, he just can't get a hold on things. Something excites him about soiling the bed of Ned and Catelyn, but he also punishes the Ironborn for being Ironborn, doing what Ironborn do. So he, he just can't land on either side. He criticises his father and he unintentionally compliments Ned at the same time. Even though, if you were to ask him, he would be, he would say the opposite, wouldn't he? And really, I can't see anything here that hasn't been said before. Theon is messed up, and his identity problems are directly tied to his downfall and disillusionment about saving the people of the castle, etc., etc. He thinks he's doing good for them when, I mean, any kind of sane person could look at it for two seconds and see, no, you're really not, mate. You're really not. Um, <laughs> yeah, I really can't say anything else about Theon there other than. He's messed up. Let's move on to the final chapter of the day. John 6, up in the frost fangs, up in the true wild of the north now, with Corrin and that merry little band. There's a lot to get through in this chapter, but again, Aziz and the Cher doing such a good job, they got to most of it. But I still got some some thoughts just to finish this off here. And firstly, it's really interesting that John shows off his Lord Commander vibes uh, in this chapter. He analyzes and he appreciates the different qualities and strengths of Corrin's group, as he will of the whole Night Shorts later on. There's a lot of John as a Lord Commander foreshadowing in this book and lessons learned in this book, probably more so than he ever would have learned if he'd stayed at the wall. So, and this is just the latest in this change of situation. Now, in this uh, little skirmish that happens with Egret and uh, the others, it's the first time that John kills a man, but he never really gets time to focus on the fact that he's taken a life. He's, we don't ever really see him sitting down and pondering, which is a thing you would normally expect in like a protagonist or a hero's journey, the first time taking a life and then kind of dealing with that. But John's, to be fair, he's pretty busy. He's got enough to get on with, so we don't get that experience through his POV. Let me read you a quote here. Were you sent to watch for us? John asked. You and others. Now, obviously you can't see this, but there's no capital on others there, and that's Egret talking. So is that because John doesn't know that that's what she's referring to, or does Egret not call the others the others, or is she actually just referring to the Night's Watch? Because it seems like you and others is fairly foreboding and that they're aware of the, of the threat, or is it more actually just based in reality and they're just watching for different bands of Night's Watchmen? Could be either one. Now, I like this chapter a lot because John takes bravery through thinking about Bran. And he takes mercy through thinking that Egret is like Aya. So he, he remains the most connected to the most the highest number of siblings. He is basically the essential centre of their generation, despite the fact that he's supposed to remain on the outside. He thinks about Rob the most, probably, other than Bran. But he also thinks Bran a lot, about Bran a lot. He thinks about Aya a lot. Really, he just doesn't think about Sans, and that's about it. So of all of them... He's actually the kind of centre of this group, despite the fact he's supposed to be on the outside. And he's actually even reusing Tyrion jokes and not even bothering to give him credit. So uh, cite your sources, John, is what I say there. And finally today, to finish off, like Theon's constant wondering about whether he acts like Ned or not, John wonders the same thing here near the conclusion, but he's coming at it from the other angle. He wants to be as cold as Ned, but he can't find it in himself to take Egret's head. So that's actually an opposite of Theon, really. It's the reverse, in that... Theon doesn't want to be like Ned Stark, but he kind of keeps getting dragged back to it. 
John does, but he does, but he doesn't really. It's a, it's a really tough choice for him. That's a really key moment in John's um, ability to view the outside world as not so clear cut as lessons he's learned in his childhood. He's learning to make his own decisions now, um, whilst still obviously maintaining that very neddish way of thinking going forward. And that's our six chapters for today. That's that's a wrap there. Six chapters. We have another one to go, another six, and then we're really into the Battle of the Black War from there on. And then we're nearly finished with the book. I think this is I think last week was the one gap we've had, and other than that, I guess we've gone straight forward for eight weeks. So it'll be that one done and then onto Storm of Swords, which is even longer than the first two. Anyway, thank you for joining me. I hope you've enjoyed. Please do get in touch. Let me know how you're enjoying your reread. Or let me know if you're actually physically rereading the book. You might just be listening along. Could be. Also, I'm just interested. Let me know what you're reading. Other than this, what are you reading first time? I'm a big lover of books. I'm sure you can tell. I'd be very interested to hear what our listeners are reading. You can get in touch via email. I've said it before. Twitter is normally quickest. Sir Buckley, I'm sure you know the one by now. It's that guy that was always going on about castles. You know the really annoying one? That's me. Uh, yeah, I won't, I won't go back into that again. I'll just say thank you for listening. And yeah, do get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Other than that, have a great week and we'll see you next time.